there are still quite a few uncertainties that remain, particularly around actually qualifying for the JobKeeper payment itself. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to another COVID-19 update of Text Talks, this time about the newly-fledged JobKeeper package that passed both houses on Wednesday. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. The JobKeeper package or the package about the JobKeeper payments is by far the largest of the federal rescue missions. It will cost us an estimated 130 billion Australian dollars over the next six months. But putting aside how much it costs, more important is, how do you qualify for this support? Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal will walk you through the details. This interview was recorded yesterday afternoon, so Thursday the 9th of April 2020. JobKeeper payments has yep. royal assent? I'm not sure if it has royal assent yet, but it did pass through both houses of government yesterday. Is it very different to what you had expected? Or? It's very interesting. It's quite different to most legislation. When I first opened the legislation, I was expecting to see... I guess a prescriptive set of rules, for instance, regarding the criteria to qualify for the JobKeeper package, things about what if it's a new business, lots of things like that, lots of detail type things like that. The very first point to note is that none of that information is actually contained in the legislation that was passed yesterday. The legislation that was passed yesterday is really a framework to fill in more detail that is provided later on. Now, normally with legislation, let's take an example of the small business CGT concessions. The legislation is about 50 pages long because it has to deal with various situations and have quite prescriptive rules. What has been passed is essentially a framework and there will be more information provided along the way on how exactly the scheme works. And that information, I call it information, but it is law, it will be given by the Treasury or the Commissioner of Taxation through the form of what's called delegated legislation or even sub-delegated legislation. So it's similar to determinations that are made from time to time. For instance, for GST, determinations can be made that are not an act itself. And that's what we've got with the JobKeeper package. Have you ever seen something like this before, where Parliament basically passes a bill that sets a framework, leaves lots of detail out, and then the ATO and Treasury can fill out those details? I've never seen anything like it. I think it's completely unprecedented. The reasoning behind the way that it's been done, I am guessing or deducing, is that all the detail hasn't been prepared yet. And the COVID-19 situation is a very fluid. rapidly fluid, evolving situation over time. And Parliament can be a little slow in bringing everyone together, 
and passing legislation. So this approach allows guidelines and rules, I should call them rules rather than guidelines, it allows rules to be made in a much quicker time frame without necessarily going through the parliamentary process. Now, that has benefits. It is quite sort of unprecedented to be on this scale if you consider that this is the largest ever spending package by the government and the details of how it exactly works are not in the legislation. It's quite a remarkable situation given the the gravity of the situation, I guess. At first sight, it sounds like a good idea to me because things are changing all the time. So just setting a framework and then Treasury and the ATO can adjust it as time comes along. It sounds like a good idea to me. It can be a good idea and there's there's definitely benefits in doing so. I suppose the concern that I guess I have is that... You still don't know how it actually will work. Yeah, well, the ATO's primary job is to apply the law. Well, some of it will be done by Treasury and some of it will be done by the ATO, but there's limited law to apply and some of that law will actually be by the ATO. So Mm. it's a very interesting situation and perhaps it's the best approach. Time will tell. Legislate as you go. Almost. The bill does contain some important features which we we can go through. But yeah, at the moment, there's still a few gaps. Treasury have released quite a detailed frequently asked questions guide more details been provided when that was that was released on the 5th of april so so we do have some information to go off but there are still gaps in the knowledge look i think for vanilla situations in in the the, the overwhelming majority of cases the approach is fine i mean it may be very clear for some businesses whether their turnovers drip dip by 30% and it may be very easy so It's more in the cases of the grey, on the fence, ones that qualify or don't qualify, or perhaps do things to try to qualify that um, the difficulties sort of arise a little bit more. The JobKeeper payment, it's important to go through what exactly that is, especially in these times of new measures coming out sort of weekly. It's not to be confused with the job seeker payment, which is an entirely different regime. The job seeker regime can be thought of as similar to a boosted up version of Centrelink and the new start allowance. So job seeker is for people who've lost their job Yep. And now need to apply to Centrelink to be able to put food on the table. And the job seeker just has boosted up those payments. Yeah, that's correct. The job keeper, by contrast, should be thought of as a wage subsidy for employers. A wage subsidy for employers that must be passed on to the employees. So the fundamental difference between the two is job seekers for people who do not have employment and job keeper is for people who are employed. So what the job keeper payment intends to do is it intends to provide $1,500 per employee per fortnight. The money is paid to the employer and then the employer must pay that money on to 
employees. The employees may be either still working in the business on a full-time, part-time or long-term casual arrangement, or they may be in fact still on the books of the employer, but temporarily stood down because there's not enough work to go around. So that list of employees is the is essentially who are the employees that are eligible to ultimately benefit from this scheme. You just said the word casual. I understand that the JobKeeper payments do not apply to casual workers, that they only apply to full-time and part-time workers. Is that right? The JobKeeper payments do apply to some casual workers. For it to apply to a casual worker, they need to be a long-term casual worker. Now, I do not profess to be an employment specialist, but what I understand a long-term casual worker to be is someone who has been engaged by a business on a regular and systematic basis for more than 12 months. The intention of what is defined as a long-term casual is that these people are much more similar to full-time and part-time employees and should be generally afforded similar rights to those classes of employees. And that's the way the Fair Work Act works. The JobKeeper picks up those definitions and applies it here. Does this uh, 12 months requirement, does it also apply to full-time and part-time employees? No. So for full-time and part-time employees, the only requirement is that the employees are on the books of the employer as at 1 March 2020. There is also scope for employees that have been stood down to be rehired so long as they were on the books of the employer as at 1 March 2020. Okay. And on the books of the employer means the employer was registered for pay-as-you-go withholding and paid a wage before the 1st of March. It's not clear what that means at this stage okay. because it's something that will be provided for later. All we can go off at the moment is the treasury fact sheets, which talk about employees being on the books. So not yes. exactly sure what it means. If they changed employers within the last 12 months, would they still qualify? No, because the eligibility is tested as at 1 March 2020. So if they don't meet the criteria as at 1 March 2020, then generally they will not be included. The further information that's been provided from Treasury does envisage some situations where someone who has not been engaged for 12 months could qualify. Okay, but there are more there's conditions. More, <laughs> there's more conditions. There's the employee condition, which, which we've just gone through, and there's also the employer conditions. So there's conditions around what entities are eligible for the JobKeeper payment. And generally, all business types are eligible for the, for the JobKeeper payment, including not-for-profits. Yes, but excluding government entities. Excluding government and excluding the major banks that are subject to the major bank levy and any corporations that are owned by government, those are all excluded. But other than that, most other sectors are included. There is a note in the fact sheet that if certain sectors do receive particular support from the government, they may forego the JobKeeper payment. It doesn't exactly explain what those sectors are. The one that I could think of is perhaps the airline industry, but 
that's complete speculation. You mentioned a not-for-profit charity, so I assume yep. registered charities, the CACNC. Yep. Do they also need to comply with the 1st of March 2020 cutoff, or can they still hire and then still qualify for the JobKeeper payment? Do you remember how for the mm. cash flow boost, yes. certain conditions didn't apply to registered charities? Does this condition of the 1st of March, does that apply to registered charities? I believe it applies across the board in that a charity can't now hire someone and have the JobKeeper payment apply to them. Just on a, on a practical level, if you took that line of reasoning, then a charity could essentially hire a thousand people tomorrow and have them all getting the JobKeeper payment, which the intention of the JobKeeper payment is not to encourage hire businesses new- to hire people. It's just to retain existing jobs or jobs that existed as at 1 March 2020. So turning to the eligibility, the main eligibility point for employers, the main eligibility point is the turnover of the business and specifically the drop in turnover of the business. So there's two subtests. There's one that applies to businesses that have turnover of more than a billion dollars. And there's one that applies to everyone else. So turnover of less than $1 billion. If your turnover is less than $1 billion, you will be eligible if your turnover, or more specifically, if you estimate that your turnover has fallen or will likely fall by 30% or more. So it's a 30% drop in turnover. This drop is over what period? Because I'm conscious of, you know, in January, we had the bushfire. So a lot of businesses would already have suffered a significant drop in turnover, probably already since November or December last year. The drop is generally in comparison to a comparable period last year. So either on a monthly or quarterly basis, based on, in the usual case, what has been reported in the entities BAS at that particular point in time. So... Okay, so we could compare the March best to the March best for 2019. From what Treasury's released is that's the general position that what should be done is there should be a comparison between the revenue as at the current particular period, whether that's a month or a quarter, relative to the turnover in a corresponding period a year earlier. So in other words, yeah, look at what happened in 2019 at the same time. That, of course, is a problem for companies who grew significantly in 2019. So maybe our relatively young had not so much turnover yet in 2019, grew significantly in 2020, and now were hit hard. Of course, that will be harder for them. But then maybe they can compare to the December or the September quarter. Yeah, well, they grew so much. Well, yeah, there's a number of categories of businesses that it's more difficult to apply this comparable period test The examples that are given by Treasury include businesses that have been newly established and obviously didn't have any trading history as at the, uh, let's say, March 2019. Businesses that have made acquisitions, so essentially their profit yielding structure is much larger now. And therefore, it may not be appropriate to compare to what the business was doing last year because it's a much bigger beast now. Businesses that have been scaling up 
in a similar sense of, of going through a growth phase, not through acquisitions, but just through internal growth or businesses that have very lumpy income for whatever reason. So there's a number of situations that we can think of where the comparable period test may not be the best indicator of essentially being affected by COVID-19. What the Treasury documents say to date is that the tax commissioner will have the discretion to consider additional information that the business provides to establish that it has been adversely affected by the impacts of coronavirus. Now, to touch on the earlier point that I made about the lack of guidance in the legislation, this is an example where we really don't have much guidance to go on for any of these categories of businesses at the moment because what I imagine is there is ultimately going to be a discretion available to the commissioner but then questions arise, well, how should, how should that discretion be exercised? What factors are important? How do you challenge that discretion? All these important decisions and questions still need to be worked through. You said there were two tests with respect to the drop of turnover. Did you mean in respect to above 1 billion and below 1 billion or is yes, there another sorry, test? Sorry, just depending on your circumstances. So if, if it's above, if the business has turnover of above 1 billion, then the business is required to have a 50% drop in turnover. Okay. And, and below important. 1 billion, it's just below. It's, it's just- 30. Yeah. And it's important to note that the way that the JobKeeper package is proposed is that it's based on whether the business is likely to suffer a drop of turnover, not necessarily requiring that the business has suffered a 30% drop in turnover. Specifically on this point, the fact sheet notes that there will be tolerance, some tolerance, where employers in good faith have estimated that there is a going to be a drop of 30% or 50% in the case of a, a larger business, but they do not experience that level of turnover drop and experience a slightly smaller fall in the words of the, the Treasury documents. So, Exactly how that will work, it's another question to be determined. So at the moment, it's not clear what happens if a business says, yes, they will have a drop of 30%, but then as it turns out, they only have a drop of 20% or 10%, maybe no change, or maybe they even grew instead of having a drop in turnover, because some businesses are actually doing quite well at the moment. So it's not clear yet what the consequence is when you get this wrong. Absolutely. And for some businesses, look, it's very clear to work out whether they're going to have a 30% drop in turnover. If you're a gym that can't operate anymore or a cinema, you're going to definitely have a 30% drop in turnover. It seems like, uh, while I'm not a hospitality expert, a lot of food providers may experience that even though they can still operate. And other businesses, I guess it's a question mark, uh, an online business, uh, you know, a law firm, an accounting firm, other professional services, yeah, jury's still 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 out on on all of yes. those. Yeah. You know, I agree with you. For some, it will be a very clear cut answer, but of course, there's always the fuzzy grey at the edges, and and then the question is, what are the consequences if you are quite aggressive in the interpretation of this condition? Let's turn to some of the some of the law that has been passed, so we can talk of some things that we do know. In applying for the job keeper, an application is required to be made to 
the Australian Taxation Office and exactly what that application includes or must include is not clear at the moment in terms of what specifics need to be provided and those specifics I would say would likely change depending on the business affected. If it's something where it's very obvious, there may be a lot less uh, detail necessary. If it's something with that's, that's a bit more, less black and white, more detail may be required. What the legislation does talk about is it talks about certain record keeping requirements that are generally required for an employer to have. There are two categories of records that a business needs to keep. There are what's called prepayment record keeping requirements and post-payment record keeping requirements. Now, because the legislation that's passed is very bare bones, I can only try to make sense of what those actually are referring to. And what I believe the prepayment record keeping requirements are referring to is your eligibility for the JobKeeper package itself. So there's prepayment record keeping requirements and generally what the legislation says is that employer must have adequate prepayment record keeping requirements. And what I think that means is basically they need proper evidence to be able to substantiate that they are indeed eligible for the JobKeeper package. If they do not have that evidence, then they're not eligible for the JobKeeper payments. There is also post-payment record keeping requirements. Again, it's not clear exactly what these are referring to, but what I imagine these are referring to are more payments made and who they've been made to. So those are the two conditions for employers, a 30% drop of turnover if you're below 1 billion or 50% drop in turnover if you're over 1 billion, and then that you comply with documentation requirements relating to prepayment and post-payment. Yep. Yep, correct. That's all with respect to the employer. And then the employee needs to have been on the books on the 1st of March. And also the employee must be 16 or older. Yes. Yep. 16 or older as at 1 and, March. Yep. Yeah, 1 of March. And must be a resident of Australia for tax purposes. Yep. The employees need to be a resident of Australia for tax purposes as at 1 March 2020. And they also need to be a certain category of visa holder, either Australian citizen, holder of a permanent visa, or special category subclass 444 visas. So not everyone is eligible for mm-hmm. payments. And is there a time requirement with respect to how long they have been a permanent resident? So for, Because I think for Centrelink, for example, there is a requirement that a new permanent resident must have been a permanent resident, I think, for one or two years before they can apply for Centrelink. Does the same apply to the JobKeeper? No, the JobKeeper just looks at, it's just a point in time test, just looking at their status as at that date of 1 March 2020. Okay, perfect. So that means as long as you had your PR on the 1st of March, you qualify for the JobKeeper, even though you wouldn't have qualified for the Centrelink JobSeeker payments. Yep, yep. So how do the payments work for for the JobKeeper package? Now, as we've gone through, the JobKeeper package is intended to benefit employees. 
payments are made to employers. So there needs to be a mechanism from getting from the employers to the employees. Treasury have stated that no payments are actually going to flow through to employers until early May. However, this JobKeeper package has already is already actually in effect. It started, it commenced effect on 30 March. Now, what happens is employers are required to make payments to employees. If the employers make those payments to employees, and they need then, to make them now. Yes, yeah, they need to make they may need to make them periodically. In other words, now. And what will happen is the employer will then be reimbursed by the government through the JobKeeper package. So it's an important distinction because in some people's minds, money comes from the government first and then the employer passes it on. If you actually look through how the mechanisms are designed, payments need to be made by employers for periods. And if those payments are made, the government will pay the JobKeeper allowance to employers. I see. And do the employers need to prove that they made those payments? Or is it enough to just say that you made those payments? Under the legislation, you are required to make those payments. And if for whatever reason you do not qualify for a JobKeeper payment, then you're required to pay the money back to the commissioner plus interest. So... I don't so believe you generally need to prove. prove that you made the payment, but I understand a lot of this will be administered through the single touch payroll system. So I think that is the, the way it's going to be done. I see. Okay. And through STP, of course, the ATO can see whether the payment was made or not. Yeah. Hmm. But it's a huge onus on the employer for two reasons. A, let's assume they do get the job keeper, they qualify, then they still need to fund from now beginning of April, 9th of April to sometime in May, that's still a month when your cash flow is down and your coffers are empty. That is still Absolutely. a major undertaking. And it's worth jumping to how, what is the amount of the JobKeeper? Now, the JobKeeper is not a sliding scale. It's not pro rata. It is a one figure for everyone, which is $1,500 per fortnight. So in other words... If you're an employer and you're paying an employee and you're paying them more than that amount, you've really got two options. One is you continue to pay them the amount of what they were getting paid and they'll continue to work in the business. The other option is you consider whether reducing their hours or standing them down because they can't really provide any meaningful work at the moment. And in that case, they will get $1,500 per fortnight. So in other words, if the employee is already over $1,500 per fortnight, the employer will get a $1,500 credit so long as they pay at least $1,500 to their employee. And that sort of makes sense. Now, if you've got employees that are being paid less than $1,500 per fortnight, you would think that perhaps the amount that needs to be paid to those employees is the amount that they were earning. It's, it's not. It's, it's also $1,500. So, to take a simple example, let's say there's employers got an employee on the books and pays them $750 per fortnight. In order for the employer to get any payment from the government under the JobKeeper legislation, the employer must pay $1,500 to the employee. If they pay anything less than that, they do not get the JobKeeper payment, the reimbursement. 
So in other words, and to take up the point about payments are only going to start flowing in May from the from the government, the employer is now in the situation where it needs to fund potentially even larger um, employment payments than it was already contractually obliged to do to get any benefit whatsoever, which is a really interesting situation. I assume that the employer can decrease any employment relationships down to $1,500. So if somebody was employed before for, let's say, $3,000 a fortnight and was then stood down because the business had to close down, the employer is not obliged to take them back at $3,000 per fortnight. They can just say, you can please come back at $1,500 a fortnight. That's broadly correct. So the JobKeeper legislation that was passed last night in Parliament does include really important amendments to the Fair Work Act to essentially allow employers to do things that they would generally generally otherwise not be entitled to do under the Fair Work Act. In broad terms, introduces a new part to the Fair Work Act that applies for the next six months. And if a business qualifies for the job keeper, it can use these new provisions in the Fair Work Act. If it doesn't qualify for the JobKeeper, it can't use these provisions in the Fair Work Act. Now, broadly, the Fair Work Act changes give employers a lot more flexibility. For instance, they can stand down employees, they can ask employees to work less hours or even from different locations. What they can't do, or one of the things that they can't do is they can't reduce an employee's hourly rate. So, They can't say, in other words, okay, let's say I've got an employee and I'm paying them, say, $40 an hour. I can't say to my employee, "Um, you know, we still want you to work full time, but we're only going to pay you $20 an hour now or some amount that works out as $1,500 per fortnight. They can't do that. So there's some changes that employers can make. For instance, they can stand down employees and they can ask employees to work lesser hours. If an employee was on $150 an hour, before, if you took their monthly salary and divided into regular hours, and they were $150 per hour, then the employer basically can just ask them to work 10 hours per fortnight. Correct. Yeah, they can ask the employee to work less hours with the result that that is going to result in a lesser wage bill. But they can't ask the employee to work the same amount of hours for less money. I assume that during the JobKeeper payments, Annual leave doesn't accrue, sick leave doesn't accrue, and long service leave doesn't accrue. Is that right? I don't believe that's right. From my understanding of the bill, most of those entitlements do continue to accrue. I see, but based on the JobKeeper payments, not based on the original salary. I believe it's based on their original salary. So your entitlement to sick leave is not a dollar figure. Your entitlement to sick leave is an hourly amount, like is 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 an amount of hours or days So in other words, let's say you've incurred a lot of sick leave, uh, you've been in a business for 10 years, and now you're in a very uh, senior position and you're at a very high hourly rate, you sort of get the benefit of incurring a lot of sick leave hours. And if you've got the other situation, you can sort of not get the benefit. I think, Andrew, I first actually need to understand what this standing down actually means. Yeah, so, so so what a stand down is, is, and this is legislated through the amendments to the Fair Work Act, is that an employer can make reasonable requests to employees for them to essentially cease working. 
it doesn't need to be that the business is closed. It doesn't need to be all employees ceased working, but it can request that employees cease working. And don't receive a salary. They cease working and they don't. Yeah, they do not receive a salary. Basically, the employment contract stops. You don't receive any salary. You don't receive any annual leave or sick leave or long service leave for this period of the stand down. I'm not sure so the, whether so it's the, correct to say that the employment contract stops. I believe the employment contract is put on ice, on, yeah. but it's basically put on ice. Yeah. The Fair Work Act amendments do make it quite clear that entitlements do continue to accrue. So oh, really? Yeah. So accrual of things like sick leave and annual leave and things even like paid parental leave because to get paid parental leave you need to establish that there's a period of service so even things like the paid parental leave is actually foreshadowed by these changes okay so that basically means that when there is a stand down the employment contract basically continues as before you still accrue annual leave you still accrue sick leave long service mm-hmm. leave you still count as being working for periods like qualifying for parental leave, et cetera. The only thing that basically stops is that you don't work and you don't receive a salary, but everything else continues. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. You're still an employee. All your benefits are still there, but two things are missing. One, you don't have to go into work. And two, you don't you get don't your receive- normal salary. And you might actually get, you would either get less or you might even get more depending on your situation. Whether the JobKeeper payment comes in or not, long service leave and everything else, annual leave just continues clicking along in the background as before. So now the JobKeeper payment comes in and that basically just means you can be asked to work again for a certain number of hours and then you will receive exactly $1,500 for that work, but it must represent at least the hourly rate you received before. So it could actually mean a much higher hourly rate. So let's say you were on minimum wages before and the employer doesn't actually need you that many hours on minimum wages because, for example, it's a restaurant and they are only open for three hours every night. They actually don't need you that much. So you might actually increase your hourly rate significantly by being paid $1,500 for the reduced hours you do. Yeah, particularly if you're part-time to start with, yeah. And the employer doesn't have to go beyond the $1,500 a fortnight. If you are, let's say, on $150 per hour before, then they can just offer you 10 hours per fortnight. Yeah, yep. Does pay-as-you-go withholding apply to JobKeeper payments? Because I understand that the JobKeeper payments count as normal assessable income to the employee. So Mm. they are not like the cash flow boost that is non-assessable, non-exempt. The JobKeeper payments are assessable income. And I assume they're assessable income to both, to the employer and the employee. But then, of course, the employer then has a deductible expense when they pay out the JobKeeper payment to the employee. Yeah, yeah. How I understand it based on the treasury material is starting with the employee, the $1,500 is assessable income to the employee. So it's taxable to the employee. And if they've got other income, then, you know, pushes them up on tax brackets and so forth. And POIG withholding does apply to employers. So employers must withhold under the POIG rules for the employee. 
turning to the employer, what it's suggested from the material, and it is not 100% clear to me, is that it, the payments are actually not accessible to the employer, which I believe would then mean that there's no deduction available as well, because otherwise yes. <laughs> the employer would be in a great position. So I think I think for the employer, it's sort of treated as as a flow through. And for the employee, it's taxable. And then the question is, what's in it for the employee? Because the job seeker payment, I understand that those are non-accessible, non-exempt payments. So that means under the job seeker payment, you receive those payments tax-free. Under the job keeper payments, you have to pay tax on them. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. The job seeker payments are quite a bit less than the job keeper payment. I'm not sure on the exact number for the job seeker, but the job keeper is significantly more than the job seeker. Okay. I have no yeah, idea the job how seeker... payments actually work. <laughs> Look, I, I don't either. What I understand is that the job seeker is income tested and it is also asset tested, whereas none of those things apply to the job keeper. The job keeper is solely based on an employment relationship existing. And then that, of course, and also answers another question I had, and that is, what is the incentive for employees to go back into the JobKeeper payments? But of course, the answer is the JobKeeper is a lot more money, hence the incentive to, to work. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, that's the difference. But there's no obligation for employees to accept the JobKeeper. It's just an offer the employer can make, but then it's up to the employee to accept it or not to accept it. Yeah. I mean, an employee could always resign if, if they've been given a stand down order, they could choose to resign if they so wished. I see, but that's the only way they can't decline the job keeper payment. I believe so. It doesn't seem to me that there is, I mean, not that it really, I couldn't think, think of anyone who would say no to the money, but you need to keep the employment relationship. So if your employer requires you to still work and you just say, no, I don't want to work, then you're probably going to find yourself potentially out of a job and not getting any JobKeeper payment, but it's tied to the employment relationship. Is the employer allowed to give an employee a different task to what they had before? Let's think of somebody who worked as a hygienist and now can't work, but now they are asked to do other things, be it admin work, be it <laughs> painting the practice walls or something. You know, To what extent is an employer allowed to redesign their tasks, that question could lead to some employees declining the JobKeeper payment if it means that they yeah, have to definitely. paint or clean yeah. or... Yeah. Please tell so, me. Okay. So under the, the Fair Work amendments to the Fair Work Act, if an employer qualifies for the JobKeeper scheme, it can make what is called JobKeeper enabling directions to an employee. And those include things like giving a direction to an employee about the nature of their duties and where they are to be performed as well. For example, performing work from home. The qualifier for the nature of the employee's duties is that they need to be within their skill and competency. So I think there's a bit of subjectiveness or assessment that's required there on whether something is within their skill or competency. Can't ask someone to be a brain surgeon if they don't have that capacity. But if it's something that is within their skill and competency, then that could be a reasonable direction that the employee needs to follow. 
there's a huge onus on the employer for two reasons. One is the cash flow gap that they need to fund the JobKeeper payments now and only receive some money in, in May. But the other huge onus is also that the employers bear a huge risk because if they start paying JobKeeper payments now, they bring everybody back on and then for some reason they don't qualify. Maybe their turnover didn't drop by 30% and the ATO doesn't accept the employer's estimate that they thought it would, or maybe the employer didn't qualify for some reason, or maybe the employee didn't qualify for some reason because they were casual and the ATO doesn't accept that they counted as a long-term casual, whatever it might be. The employer bears a huge risk mm-hmm. making all these payments now and not knowing for sure whether they will actually qualify for the JobKeeper payments or not. Yeah, you, you're quite right that there is an element of risk there because as we went through a little earlier, the employer is required to make payments for the periods and the periods are generally fortnightly periods. Now that's started already on 30th of March, but the first payment won't flow through until early May. So an employer really needs to sort of assess whether they are eligible or not and work out which employees are eligible or not. And They've got to grapple with that during this turbulent time. And this is not simple stuff either. This is complex provisions and legislation. And there's still more rules to come out which haven't been released yet. So, yeah, you're quite right. There is a bit of an onus on employers. Yeah. And think of a restaurant. They easily have 10, 20 staff on the books. And then let's say 10 because it's an easy number to calculate. And so they bring everybody back on, pay $1,500 to everybody. So that's $15,000 a fortnight, thinking they will get that back in a month's time. And then for some reason, they don't qualify and they are short of $15,000 per fortnight. So that easily amounts over a six or 10 10 week period, you know. Absolutely. (laughs) It can bankrupt. If this goes wrong, it can completely bankrupt the business. Yeah, look, you're completely right. And even if they do get the, even if they are eligible, it's explicitly noted in some of the treasury material that there may be cash flow difficulties for certain businesses. All the treasury document provides in those circumstances is that the business may want to speak to their bank to discuss their options. And the banks have said that businesses may be able to use the upcoming JobKeeper payment as a basis to obtain credit. In other words, go speak to your bank and they may be able to help you by providing some short-term finance. I think the 15 billion funding facility given to banks is about very easy short-term loans of up to 250,000 to businesses. Yeah, yeah. And that may help with providing these the liquidity to businesses to fund the JobKeeper payments. Yeah. Just very quickly, the actual payment, I know you mentioned May. Is there a clear date when the first JobKeeper payments will come? No. What we have to go off at the moment is that the payment will be made. The first payments by the ATO will be received by employers in the first week of May and that the payments will be made monthly in arrears. So I expect that to mean that the full April payment will be received in the first week of May, and then it will continue on that basis for the next six months. Okay, but that's already quite quick then. 
let's say you pay fortnightly, then you yep. basically just have to fund the first fortnightly payment for three weeks and the second fortnightly payment for a week. Yeah, yep. So about a month of funding, uh, and then you'll be you'll be paid, or a little bit over a month for the first one. Let's start with the sole traders. How are sole traders faring in this? I hope they get more out of this than the cash flow boost. Yes. And I mean, when I talk about sole traders, I mean sole traders who don't have employees. Of course, sole traders who have employees, of course, they fly through the cash flow boost and they fly through the JobKeeper payments as well. But the sticky point, of course, is always the sole traders who just work alone. Yeah, it's a really good question. And, and it's a really good question in light of all the drama around the application of the cash flow boost to sole traders in the literal sense of being a, an individual carrying on a business and also businesses that didn't have employees, but they may have had directors, sole shareholders and things like that, essentially drawing what's, what is a de facto wage. There is good news for the JobKeeper package that it is a lot more all-encompassing than the cash flow boost. So self-employed people are eligible to receive the JobKeeper payment. Their requirements broadly are quite similar to any other business in that they need the fall of turnover. They need to have an ABN as that 12th of March, 2020. And they needed to be essentially carrying on a business before that point in time through some sort of accessible income or taxable supplies for GST purposes. They can't be entitled to another JobKeeper payment because you could have someone who is self-employed and also an employee. So you can't get it twice. You need to be at least 16 years of age and the residency requirements apply as well. It's reasonably straightforward for a sole trader in the strict sense of, of someone who's an individual carrying on a business. The question is, well, what about other structures? Because most business owners who are quote unquote sole traders don't carry on through that form. There may be partnerships, there could be trusts, and there could be companies. Thankfully, the material from Treasury does shed some light on these situations. Now, the devil will, of course, be in the detail when the further delegated legislation actually comes out, but we do have some guidelines to go off. So there are guidelines put in place for each of those different legal entities. So turning to a partnership, first of all, if you have a partnership, each partner is not entitled to receive the JobKeeper payment. Only one partner of the partnership can receive the JobKeeper payment along with any eligible employees. I don't know why this is the case, but for example, if you've got a partnership with three partners, then you can only nominate one partner to receive the JobKeeper payment. I'm just thinking of tradies. Very often tradies are in a partnership with their wife. The wife does the books. The tradie is a plumber who goes out and does the work. Yeah, that makes sense for those sort of structures. But there are lots of partnerships that are multiple parties that are not related to each other. For those, it's quite unfair. Yeah, I would have suggested it may be easier to work out an associate or a related parties test so that genuine business arrangements that are partnerships are not disadvantaged. But that's what we've got at the moment for partnerships. They at least do get some benefit. For trusts, trusts do get benefit as well. What it says is that a trust can, of course, receive the JobKeeper payments for eligible employees. 
but also where beneficiaries of a trust only receive distributions and they're not paid for salary and wages, sorry, they're not paid salary and wages for work done, then one individual beneficiary, so not a, not a corporation, but an individual beneficiary, they can be nominated to receive the JobKeeper payment. Okay. And does the same apply to a company where the director, the sole director didn't pay themselves a wage, but only drew a dividend? Yeah. A similar treatment applies to a company. So a, an eligible business can nominate one director to receive payment, as well as, uh, of course, eligible employees again. And only one person in the director capacity can get the payment. And they can't, of course, be an employee as well, because otherwise they wouldn't need to, to nominate. But that is good news for our sole traders who don't employ, and it's good news for our directors of companies who didn't pay themselves the wage. Yeah, it is. And, and there's another one as well for companies. The question is also asked, well, if I'm paid as a shareholder rather than director's fees, then can I get the JobKeeper payment? And it says that, yes, businesses can nominate one shareholder to receive the JobKeeper payment as well. That's great news because quite often companies don't even pay director fees. They just pay a dividend and nothing else to the uh, shareholder. Exactly. And I guess there's a few sort of unresolved questions from this. I'll give you an example. What if you have a trust that's carrying on a business and has a, the trustee as a company? The trustee as a company could pay director's fees and it also has beneficiaries. It's not clear whether that means that two people could qualify or just one. Same applies to a company where there are shareholders with dividends and also director's fees to someone else. It's not clear whether, whether that means there's two benefits or just, just one. Also, benefits to two different people or just one. Who do you think will be more vocal in all this and more involved? Do you think it will be more treasury who will fill in the gaps and the ATO will resume more its role as an administrator or do you think the ATO will also actively make the rules? So what the bill allows is the bill says that the treasurer by legislative instrument can make rules about essentially the act and that includes the qualifying criteria which are not even mentioned in the act so the 30% and 50% is not even mentioned in the act or the $1,500 per fortnight for that matter. None of those matters are actually mentioned in the Act. So the Treasurer can make legislative instruments and then it provides that certain things can be sub-delegated to the Commissioner and those are intended to be things of an administrative character. That's what the legislation says. Exactly what is of an administrative character versus a non-administrative character there's always a bit of a judgment call there. But what I think that would mean is that Treasury will come up with qualifying criteria and then there'll be administrative things that are dealt with by the tax office. In There may be payment dates or forms that are required or something of, those, of that nature. It should be done by government rather than by the ATO because the problem is if the ATO is... The legislator and the make, administrator. Yeah, it's a breach of the separations of powers. So that seems to be what the situation is going to be with this. It's also worth noting that the normal abilities to challenge things are expressly retained in the Act as well. So 
in a normal tax situation, you've got Part 4C of the Tax Administration Act, which allows objections. And if you're not happy with an objection, you can go to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal or Federal Court. Those things are retained in the Act as well. So in other words, if you're unhappy with decisions that have been made by the Commissioner, there still is the normal ability to challenge those decisions. anti-avoidance rules, are they similar to Part 4A? They're very similar to the GST version of Part 4A, which is itself is very similar to Part 4A. The anti-avoidance provisions in this legislation are much more well-defined than the ones in the Cash Flow Boost Act. So for practitioners who are familiar with the anti-avoidance provisions, there is required to be a scheme and there needs to be a sole or dominant purpose of getting a JobKeeper payment in this situation. And in determining that purpose, there's eight different factors that are relevant that need to be considered, which is similar to GST and Part 4A. So yeah, it's got its own self-contained anti-avoidance provision. And I think the things that will come up, I can't think of every single situation when, and you know, there's a lot of novel people out there about different schemes that they'll come up with. But one that's already been flagged by the Treasury in the fact sheet is about what about when companies manipulate their turnover to ensure that they qualify? So in other words, I could think of a number of different situations where businesses might or ways that they could do that. Maybe they've got a new entity that they start directing work to, or they put their prices up so high that they don't get any work or or less work, all kinds of things, all kinds of novel things. In what period does the 30% drop in turnover need to occur? Is it 1st of January to 31st of March, or is it from the 1st of March six months on, over what period do you need to have the expected or actual drop in turnover? From the Treasury information, it is based on a periodical system. So in other words, it's not just based on 1 January to March or anything like that. It's a constant cycle of assessment. So you could have situations where businesses are affected and then cease to be affected or vice versa that or not oh, affected. Really? Yes. So it's, I see. Be so it's not, it's not that you just need to qualify for a period of two or three months and then all bets are off. You need to continually qualify. So for example, if you were showing that your turnover dropped from January to March, then you still need to continue showing that it dropped, that the 30% drop continued in April, continued in May, continued in June, July, August, September. Yes. Yeah, so treasury material does address this question. And the the question posed is, well, if it's unlikely that my turnover is going to reduce in the coming month, can I apply for the JobKeeper later if my turnover decreases later? And it says that in that case, you can start receiving the JobKeeper payment at a later date once the turnover test has been met. In that case, the JobKeeper payment is not backdated and it only applies from the date that you begin to meet the turnover test. I see. Okay, good. So if my turnover didn't drop at 30% in April, yep. but then I think it might drop in August or September, then I can't qualify yet for April. I might qualify in August and September if it then really 
looks like that it will drop. That's correct. Just an expectation that the turnover will drop is enough. So if in July, I think my turnover will drop for August and September and I apply and pay JobKeeper payments, and then it it actually didn't drop that much, that's still okay because I expected it to drop by 30%. Yeah, and I think one of the things that is going to be a fundamental importance is preparing these applications for the JobKeeper package because one, there's record-keeping requirements in the Act itself, which say that if you don't, if you can't substantiate anything in your application, you don't qualify for the JobKeeper package. And two, all this sort of uncertainty around likely to drop by 30%. So in some cases, the application process will be pretty easy, but in other cases, it will be quite a delicate task of actually putting together those applications for the JobKeeper package itself, particularly for larger businesses, yeah. Yeah, and also for businesses that are still operating, like it's relatively easy when your business has been shut down because you're a gym or a restaurant, then Mm. it's easy because you're shut down. But if your business is still operating, but unlikely that your clients will be able to pay, et cetera, is it also enough that clients will stop paying? So for example, take an accountant, any invoices that are being sent out now are unlikely to be paid in the near future. Mm -hmm. Does that also count? So just a, a big dip in cash flow, even though the turnover itself on an accrual basis continues, but the your turnover on a cash basis drops? The turnover is assessed by the same measures as GST. So for businesses that are on a cash basis for GST, I think they would be able to continue to use that for the job keeper measures as well if they're not on a, if they're on a accruals basis for gst think that that would apply to the job keeper as well i don't have anything on that point it's not mentioned in any material but that's what i think would be the case for businesses on an accruals basis it's worth noting that i mean the job keeper package is so huge this can apply to not only sole traders this could be a business that would have that has 100 200 500,000 staff, this can apply to really large businesses as well. So whether or not they qualify for the JobKeeper package is extremely fundamental, not only for the on the basis of getting the JobKeeper payment itself, but also being eligible for the JobKeeper payment enlivens the changes to the Fair Work Act. And in addition to that, there's a commercial tenants code of principles that's been released regarding principles applying to the landlord tenancy relationship that applies it only strictly applies to businesses that are eligible for the job keeper package as well so there's a lot riding on qualifying for the job keeper package um, in some circumstances very clear whether a business qualifies or not but i can imagine there's going to be a lot of that's going to be a decent proportion of businesses that are on the edge perhaps between qualifying and not qualifying. And it has a lot of repercussions. I think there'll be a lot coming out of this for for quite a while, just because of Mm -hmm. the gravity of, of qualifying or not qualifying. Can you just very quickly tell me what is this commercial tenancy relationship change? Does it mean that a landlord cannot evict commercial tenants 
if they qualify for the uh, JobKeeper payment? Yeah, so, so what's happened in this space is that there's a code that's been agreed to by the National Cabinet, and the National Cabinet is essentially the federal government plus all state governments and territories. They, they have agreed on a code of principles that apply to landlord-tenancy relationships for businesses with turnover of less than 50 million that qualify for the JobKeeper package. And there's a number of principles. I've, there's an article on our website that goes through it in quite a bit of detail, but essentially there's things that, that can and can't be done under arrangements that qualify. So for example, there's a freeze on evictions, yes. And there's also other things about possible rent reductions, rent increase freezes, rent abatement, increasing the terms of a lease for the period of the rent abatement. There's a lot of detail in this code as well about sort of the rights and obligations in this scenario of the landlord-tenant situation. What is rent abatement? Rent abatement is essentially a rent-free period. So you've got rent abatement or rent deferral. Rent abatement means rent-free. Rent deferral means pay it later on. Is the payment exempt from payroll tax? I'm conscious that South Australia already made it exempt from payroll tax. Do you think the other states and territories will follow or mm. is that a big question mark at the moment? I can see South Australia has announced that the they'll bring forward special legislation to, to make the, the payment exempt from payroll tax. Generally, I would say that the payments would be covered by payroll tax because the, del- the definition of wages for payroll tax is quite all-encompassing. The payment is currently the only reason of the, the only reason for the payment is because the person is an employee, either a fully engaged employee or a stood down employee, and I think that would give a necessary connection for okay. payroll tax. Most of the states have announced some payroll tax relief. So, for instance, in Victoria, any business or group that has taxable wages of less than three million dollars is exempt from payroll tax for this financial year. And in New South Wales, businesses with less than $10 million of taxable wages are exempt from payroll tax for this last quarter of the year. So some of the states have already provided relief for the smaller businesses. So it's a good question whether whether there's going to be a, a more broad relief provided. I guess it might be different in each state. I kind of think that because Victoria and New South Wales have already provided some relief for the for the smaller businesses, there, there may not be further relief provided, but it's a watch this space at the moment. Backpackers don't qualify for the JobKeeper payment. Uh, you know, somebody on a backpacker visa doesn't qualify. And most people on bridging visas probably wouldn't qualify. You mentioned a certain visa class. I think it was triple four. What is the uh, visa triple four? It's essentially covering New Zealand uh, citizens. So Australia and New Zealand have a very funny relationship where it's almost impossible for New Zealanders to actually become permanent residents or citizens of Australia. They've got their special category of visa, the 444. So it's essentially only applicable to New Zealanders. So that basically means the group of people that could qualify for the JobKeeper payment is quite well defined. It's Australian residents, it's permanent residents, and it's New Zealanders living in Australia on a 444. Yep. So anyone on a, for instance, a skilled migration visa or a backpacker visa 
they don't qualify. What about a part-time employee who also works as a sole trader? They would only qualify for the job keeper in one or the other capacity. So they could only either qualify as in their part-time employee capacity or as a sole trader. And then, of course, the question comes, how does the ATO track all this? And I assume the ATO tracks this through the TFN. I think that they do track it through the TFN as there's a number of amendments regarding tax secrecy that, that have been made around TFN disclosure and things like that. If you are receiving the JobKeeper payment by virtue of being an employee, so flowing through to the employee, then you cannot claim another round of it by virtue of also being a sole trader. So you can, yes. only, you can only ever get it once. Does any Centrelink payment bar you from receiving the JobKeeper payment? If you're on the age pension, but you work a few hours a week, can you still receive the JobKeeper payment if you're already on some Centrelink payment? What I understand the situation to be is the JobKeeper is not, you're not, not, a, not entitled to the JobKeeper because of any of those things, but the JobKeeper payment is accessible income and therefore may affect those other entitlements that you would otherwise have gotten, like, for instance, the age pension, because the age pension is subject to income restrictions. So you might still be better off because the JobKeeper will be higher than that, but it's probably unlikely that you'll get both. So Centrelink payments don't bar you per se from receiving the JobKeeper payment, but the uh, JobKeeper payment goes into the income test and hence might affect your other entitlements. Yeah, and I think there's been statements from the ATO that or other bodies that if you receive the JobKeeper, you won't receive the JobSeeker. And I think the reason for that is because the job seeker is subject to income tests. And by virtue of receiving the job keeper, you will breach those income tests. You said before that the employer can't reduce the hourly rate. What about penalty rates? So, for example, if a restaurant reopens for takeaway and also does this on a Sunday, do penalty rates, etc., still apply or is it just a flat hourly rate of what they received before? It's not clear to me because the amendments don't really talk about penalty rates. They do make it quite clear that the Fair Work Act applies and, and things like enterprise bargaining agreements and, and, and contractual arrangements still apply broadly subject to certain carve-outs. Carve-outs like you can make a direction to someone to work from different location or different hours. My gut feeling is that those penalty rates would still need to be applied on the basis that the hourly rates can't be reduced. And I would think that that would also extend to things like penalty rates. From a policy perspective, I, I would be very surprised if that if those if it was allowed that those penalty rates would be taken away is it's yeah, quite a politically sensitive issue my initial view is that penalty rates would remain the same and just to reiterate the hourly rate can't drop but the number of hours the employer engages the employee can drop yeah correct yep yep the duties the location and the days of work can change If somebody was on $300 per week, now with the JobKeeper payment, they would receive $750 per week. Yeah, that's correct. Well, if the employer wants to put them in the JobKeeper 
package, they would receive $750 per week because the employer would not be eligible to receive any money whatsoever for that employee from the government unless it has done that. So the employer could choose not to if for whatever reason it so decided, but if the employer was paying that person money as, as by virtue of being an employee, then it needs to be $750 per week minimum. Was the JobKeeper bill easier to read than the cash flow boost bill? Because I think the cash flow boost bill was very confusingly drafted. I don't think it was any easier. And I think it was probably more difficult just because of the scale of this program being the largest in the history of government spending. The things as a, as a lawyer that, that stood out to me is how this the legislative framework has been put together really leaves a lot still to be done. Now, we do have guidance from Treasury in the form of facts, fact sheets and quick Q&A sheets, but the actual rules and the delegated legislation has not been provided yet. So there are still quite a few uncertainties that remain, particularly around actually qualifying for the JobKeeper payment itself, and particularly for businesses where they may not, it may not be so easy to demonstrate that 30% drop because, for example, they're a new business. Welcome back. So the employer has to qualify as well as every employee. We will talk about the JobKeeper payments again in the next update. And talking about updates, that is what we will do for the next two weeks. For the next two weeks, we will just focus on COVID-19 measures and try to cover your back on those ones. And then on the 27th of April, we will start with regular episodes again. And hopefully by then, life feels more normal again. Thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you next week. The next steps from here, I imagine, is there will be a bit of a more formal application process and some more information will be provided around that. And there'll also be these rules or delegated legislation that Treasury will provide. So there still is a bit more to go in this. It's still a watch this space and a bit of a moving, uh, moving beast at the moment. Mm -hmm.